From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Kate Massey hosting this week along with my longtime colleagues and friends, Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. Our fourth musketeer, Eric Bradlow, is out this week. He's off doing Eric Bradlow things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are around most every week of the year, and we're going to be here for the next two hours. Guys, it is Monday afternoon. We're recording one day earlier than usual this week. Travel schedules have conspired against us, but we've got plenty to talk about, even though we're one day shorter. We've got uh, well, let's just see where you guys want to go. It seems to me that we need to start with World Cup. We have just seen the third quarterfinal set. We've got one quarterfinal yet to be determined from tomorrow morning's games. But one of those quarterfinals got set a couple of days ago. That was the U.S. getting knocked out. What has been your impression? What, what have you paid attention to? What is your eye on in the World Cup? I mean, you know, I guess, again, it's sort of like I, I feel like the matches, the core final matches I've watched so far have been very exciting, but I've been very chalk, right? I mean, it's Well, not... hold on. You haven't watched any quarterfinal matches. You watched round of 16 matches. Oh, okay. Right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So round the round of 16 matches. So, you know, I mean, the Netherlands, America, I mean, I thought the U.S. actually played pretty well and stuck with them, but the Netherlands is, a better, te- is a better <laughs> team and has it can actually score when you know, the situation kind of like lends itself to it. And I also watched the England uh, Senegal game. It was similar. I mean, you know, so, you know, it, it was competitive. Senegal had chances, but England, you know, when, when, when a kind of opportunity or opening created itself, they were, they were very clinical. It was like very pretty goals. I like, you know, goals that like are an accumulation of two to three to four amazing mm-hmm. soccer plays in a row. Mm-hmm. are you know way more I, I find those way more enjoyable than just you know the random kind of just happens to go in off a weird corner deflection or something like that right what about when the guy has you know 14 seconds to line it up and eyeball like Kane's was it the second goal yesterday it's like he had all the time in the world just to like focus you know set his feet it yep. was remarkable every yeah. now and then that happens in soccer it's like Okay, and he's one of the world's best strikers. They struggle so much to create space 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah, and, then, right. and then all of a sudden there's a dude with a wide open net. And you're like, well, that, okay. That's a <laughs> that, that might work out. Um, what do you make of, we, we talk about how uncertain soccer is. And when you watch it, it sure looks like a lot of stuff messy happens kind of all the time. But then, as you said, Shane, the round of 16 sure has been chalky. I mean, at the end of the day, the favorite has advanced in six out of the six matches that we've seen in, the, in, yeah. in this round. Which um, is a little, which is a little odd because we saw some pretty strange upsets in on a game by game basis in the opening round. But I think uh, it's, I think that's it. I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, I mean, it's like in tennis tournaments, there's a lot of ups, random upsets in the early rounds, but then it's like, it's hard to kind of keep, I, I mean, you know, any, any underdog, severe underdog team in this sort of like tier of countries that aren't, you, you know, are good good enough to soccer to make it to this point, but not the big ones. You just have to, I mean, stringing together four of those in a row, which is what you have to do to make it the whole way, is just, I mean, to expect that kind of luck, I think, you know, it's pretty, yeah, pretty rare. Yeah, but it's, that's regression. I mean, I'm just wondering whether or not they can put it together. I mean, that's the thing about soccer 
that is, and I mean, all sports in, in particular, but I think especially soccer, which is a tiring game. It's maybe similar to, to basketball in the sense that when you need it, you can really bring it. Um, yeah. And wonder whether that's a real observation or that's just. So I mean, one of the things you're saying is these, these big favorites are more likely to draw or lose in the group stage than in the knockout stage. That's, yeah, all, that's a strong. Right. A strong version of your what your statement is. They're, 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 they 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 have the expectation they're going to be in it for a long time and are probably pacing themselves a little bit more. And similarly, I think even if they went all out, like if all even the big teams went all out, they can do that because I I think the key, as especially as the tournament goes on later and later, beyond just kind of like regret, you know, not getting lucky multiple times in a row is it's I mean it's not a you know these athletes are they're playing a lot of soccer games in a relatively small amount of time super intensely um and they get you know there's I think an exhaustion level picks up but the teams that are really good these top countries have depth I mean Brazil probably Brazil's like third team could beat America's first. How, but Shane, well, how much does depth matter? You only get five subs and they don't use them until two minutes left. But you do see, I mean, I, I don't pay attention enough, but the, you know, they, they mix up the lineups for these exact reasons. You know, it's oh, not oh, like, Oh, hold on, Shane. You're saying across, lineup every oh, time. across matches. They're using yeah, the lineup. Yeah. 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 yeah the U S doesn't do that. The US well, you, I mean, the U, one you, guy. you know, no, the U S is throwing their best, however many guys every time. I mean, why, how, how could you not? But you know, okay. even play, oh. teams like England have, guys that could have played in that game didn't. And part of that is probably a strategic choice of offensive for Joe. Like there's probably so, strategy involved, but also load management involved. Well, quite honestly, Shane, that's an interesting hypothesis and it's actually imminently testable because essentially what you would be, if that, if you're right, we would observe a, um, a larger gap in average minutes in the starting lineup between say the weaker teams like the U S who just can't yeah. afford to substitute yeah, and the right. stronger teams like, say, England or Netherlands, potentially, whereby they're just not as exhausted. The Americans yeah. play mm-hmm. three games, four, what is it, three games in the first round? Mm-hmm. And I mean, they can also, they, they just have a greater choice of people that they can kind of put in, even if they are kind of playing them in every game, they 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 can choose from their, their elite soccer players that are also at that particular moment of the World Cup in the best possible shape. Like, for example, who's a, are one of the big Americans, McKinney or, or whatever? Yeah, you know, McKinney. I mean, I mean, that guy, whenever he was on the field, yeah. was was clearly one of the best players, but he just, you know, he's coming back from an injury. He couldn't be in kind of game shape. The version of McKinney on Brazil or England, probably just, or, you know, France or whatever, they, he just wouldn't play in this tournament. Mm. Or mm. he would play mm. minimally. Maybe he'd be the late substitution. Yeah, type right. Of thing okay. Because they, they, I think they just have a greater, de- they have, you know, greater degrees of freedom for these kind of calculations of managing load versus like, you know, just kind of, yeah, keeping everybody's energy level up, et cetera. That makes a ton of sense. Um, any other observations from the matches so far? We're going to talk more soccer with Chris Anderson in the fourth quarter. He's a, he's an academic and a co-author of one of the earliest books on soccer analytics, and he works with clubs around the world now. And so he's become a real expert. He's going to help us understand what's going on in American soccer in particular, but also the World Cup. So we have that in, ahead of us. But when you look at the matches that we have in front of us, we have England-France. Uh, on Saturday, Netherlands, Argentina on Friday. Yeah. Croatia, yeah, the Brazil. Round, I mean, the I mean, round of 16 matches are going to be, I mean, again, it's only, it's only really good. It's mostly only really good teams, you know, no, that'll you mean, be left by that point. But No, you mean the quarters. You, you oh, yeah, got. whichever one. Whichever one. Well, Brazil just completely stole South Korea's soul uh, this afternoon. Yeah. 
And they're running into Croatia, of course, who were the darlings of the last World Cup. The last quarter is going to be set between Morocco, Spain, playing in the morning. That's a fun one. Lots of, you know, colonial. Exactly. Colonial, like geopolitical, like intrigue. I love how we get these just random, crazy, um, politically international relations matchups every now and then. I mean, U.S. Iran today, um, this week. But, I mean, uh, England, France. I mean, my God, there's a little history there. And then Portugal, Switzerland is the last round of 16 game to play the winner of Morocco, Spain. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to continue to pull for teams that, you know, not, you know, kind of the underdogs that are, aren't usually kind of the ones there at the end. I mean, I would. Who's left? Know. I mean, Croatia is about all you got. unless Morocco. Well, well I mean, by, by having Morocco. I mean, Netherlands still, I mean, you know, teams that have not won it all, or even like, you know, I mean, if, if we had to default to one of the big teams, the ones that like England that haven't won it recently. You know, yeah. it's it just, you know, if it's going to be like another Brazil, France or Brazil, Spain final, yeah. that's maybe a little bit less. I, I mean, you less know, interesting. It'd still be exciting in a soccer sense, but yeah, not a little bit less intriguing kind of, obviously. Do you want to hear the current odds on to win the cup of the teams that are remaining? This is just kind of eyeballing across mm-hmm. four or five different online books. Top is Brazil. They're looking at. Uh, let's average that to like plus 190 or so, plus 190. Um, next up might be France at about mm-hmm. plus 450. Right behind France is Argentina. So they're expecting oh, you guys to handle they're on the that. same side of the bracket, I think, is Brazil. So that is, let me make sure. Like, I think it's, you know, Brazil and Argentina are on the one kind of side, is, and, and France, Spain, England are on the other side. But you got it. It's like South, South America coming up against. Uh, Europe. That's exactly right. So Spain, Morocco, Portugal, and Switzerland will slot into that England, France side. Yeah. And then you've got the favorites, Argentina to advance over the Netherlands and then Brazil to advance over um, Croatia. That, that's up a Titanic match, a, a South American match. All right. Um, what other odds real quickly, and then we'll move on other odds here for you before we leave England. You might be interested in England about plus 700. Mm-hmm which is just a shade better than Spain. And then we'd really drop off after that. So they are not giving the Netherlands a lot of, a lot of chance relative to Argentina's chance that match the match odds are like, uh, plus 120 plus 110 for Argentina and more like two two thirty two fifty 250 for Netherlands. All right, guys, that's enough on the world cup for now. Um, other What's top of mind? Adi, you've been teaching all day, but I have noticed, what is, do, they, do they still call it the hot stove league? Is that a, is that a term from our childhood? Is, are we in the hot stove league right now? Hot stove league? <laughs> yeah. you, 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 yeah. Season? Hot stove season? Yeah. Come on, man. Isn't that what the training is? I mean, theoretically, the hot stove season lasts for <laughs> hot stove is the, the is, World Series until spring training, I suppose. Right, right, right. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. It's, it's fascinating. About. I mean, right now, right now, the free agents are signing. I mean, obviously, I'm – uh, at the edge of my seat, trying to figure out what the hell is going to happen to Aaron Judge. There doesn't seem to be any announcement coming on that. What are the possibilities? Uh, it's fa- it, what's going on is there's a bunch of players and um, that are that are right around thirty and they want long contracts. So uh, let's just start from the top. Uh, Jacob Degrom left the Mets, going for a five year contract worth around um, just under forty million a year. So it was a thirty about thirty five million a year. But he's much older than 30, is he not? Yes, he's way older than 30. Um, he's he's 34 in, and a, a 
plays yeah. like he's 44. I mean, I mean, you know, he's an <laughs> incredible pitcher, but he's very injury prone. Yeah, but it, it's very okay. interesting because Verlander just signed a two-year deal for 80 million. I mean, a little more than 80 million. Two years. That's the highest uh, per year salary. It's only two years. But the guy's 40. What is it, 40, 41? I have to tell you, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. That doesn't sound right to me because, and listen, I screwed up Tom Brady. I made the same forecast. Um, but, but, hold, but hold on. You, can we get any information off of his arc? I mean, we've watched him pitch. He was supposedly washed up five years ago or whatever when the Astros like retooled him. But since yeah. then, since then, I'm asking a serious question. Is there a trend? And if the trend isn't down yet, is it kind of folly to predict when it's going to happen? We know it's going to happen at some point, but can you begin to predict when it's going to happen? Well, I mean, what I'm arguing Honest is, question. is that my, I'm arguing that there is thresholding here that your body just can't. I mean, the only person pitcher in history who ever really pitched fast and hard into his mid forties was Nolan Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, so is he Nolan Ryan? I mean, it just seems like a lot of money to make a bet. You're making a bet, right? It's so, only two years. That's yeah, a shorter I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the thing is, I mean, like, in t- I mean, a long years can really screw you. A lot of years can screw you over because then it holds up a slot in like a lineup and that kind of prevents you from sort of moving on if they're, they're, they're not good. But I mean, you know, there's no salary cap. So I, I don't, you know, like these short contracts for tons yeah. of money. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't even happen more often. I mean, exactly. We want these. I mean, the, the, the I mean they're the, Verlander's the exact, the exact situation for it. I guess they don't happen very often because on the player side, the players would rather have the longer contract. Um, but well, Verlander's well, perfect. I mean, right. So, so Verlander had an incredible year last year. Although, if you look at some of his peripherals, they weren't as great as they had been in the past. I mean, he didn't strike out people I mean, at the same rate compared right. to like 2011 when he also won the Cy Young. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But take a look at, for example, he yeah, I want, I want the peripherals. I want the peripherals over the last three years. I'd, I'd love to see that dashboard. Right, right. So he's still a great pitcher, but I'm, I mean, let's just point out, he got the highest per year salary, uh, uh, double, double what Clayton Kershaw got. He's 34. Double. And you're telling me a 40 year old pitcher who's been more recently, more durable is going to get two years at 80 million versus a single well, year. Well, I mean, I'll, let me, let me, let me throw it back at you. What is actually the better predictor of injuries, you know, is it age or is it recent durability? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I agree. I mean, like, Kirsch, all, the never... being, all the things being equal, 40 is much older than 34, but Clayton Kurt. I'm not sure. Is it a Markov chain? Right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. Chain? I mean, but I mean, like, I'm let's, not let's sure. Let me, let's, I, ask a, let's ask it as yeah. a serious question. Is it a Markov chain? So when I mean no, by that, our no, listeners, no. Uh, if you had one year where you were healthy, can we discard your previous years? No. And, and, and so we argue no. Yes. But obviously not. Yeah. No. I mean, well, no. You, want, you, and, you, and your, you and your statisticians want your simplifying assumptions. You don't no, get that I mean, one. I mean, I mean, the Markov, that I mean, that's the thing is the Markov model is a nice thought construct or a nice model for like, long, you know, for thinking about, you know, long term trends and stuff like that. But I mean, obviously you wouldn't use that as your model for. Well, Verlander was, you know, let's just roll things forward next year and forget about everything that happened before. Well, that. I have to say, it sounds like they're putting a pretty big bet on Verlander being healthy next year. A really high bet. Yeah. So and, forty I million mean, dollars worth, but I mean, of whose money? And, and I mean, in a way that, like, because the thing is, like, all the kind of negative consequences of big contracts, i.e., slots being taken up and luxury tax kind of consequences, 
all have to do with like long term, like in terms of year contracts. These yeah, big exactly, kind of, exactly. All right, like, all right, like, like, like your payments. Yankees, like the Yankees are about to give your judge. Your yeah, judge. Now, now let's let's turn it. Our local Phillies just handed Trey Turner a three hundred million dollar year contract for eleven years. Eleven years. Eleven years. He's twenty one nine year old shortstop. And yeah, you know I ask yourself. Is a shortstop who depends on speed can have value on on the back. Okay, so hold on, so great- guys. Do 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 the does the total does the does the advertised term of the contract actually matter or mean anything? So it's if, a, good, or, a good question. Not they're really. just going to amortize the number over the years that they actually expect to use him. So maybe they expect six years out of him. And so instead of being a whatever a twenty nine million dollars per year contract, it's you know significantly higher than that but it's not they don't expect him to be starting short stop for them at age 40 yeah no, and sure. i mean i think it's it's sort of there's more kind of total money at risk with the trey turner contract because he could have a career-ending injury within the next two or three years and then you've got like a you know set like you know six or seven years of dead money or you know like like yeah. like like an extreme example something like jacoby jacoby ellsbury's contract or something like that yeah that's what i'm um, looking at if, you I'm know. A Philly, if I'm a Philly fan, I have to say I'm pretty not I'm not exactly excited about that contract. I mean, if you're a Philly fan, then you know what you're in for. Dave Dombrowski. This is how he builds teams is <laughs> what is the best player available like right now. Give it a contract forever. You know, three <laughs> years from now is definitely going to be somebody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I mean, he's got proven success with it. And three, four years later, it's somebody proven else's failure. problem. <laughs> Just seems to me that the inherent uncertainty and a and a fast a speedster like like Turner um, has got to argue away from. Yeah, no, and I mean, I I, I also kind of question that particular deal just because there's so such a. I mean, the, the the other shorts. I mean, I guess maybe he's the first domino to fall, but I feel like there's free agent shortstops out there that are just as good and potentially, you know, like would be maybe available for less time. I mean, if if somebody go give go goes and gives Xander Bogarts a ten year contract, I guess I'll be wrong, but I wouldn't expect that. So what other signings should we be paying attention to? If we want to, t- want to take this as one of our little sports to watch for the next few weeks, what, what events should we have our eyes on? Well, Aaron Judge, I think, is like yeah. by a magnitude the big one. I mean, I think a lot of stuff will kind of is maybe in a holding pattern waiting for that because that's the example of a contract that will require yeah. the amount of money and time where that's going to basically determine your franchise for the next like you so, can't really, so what's, it's hard to make it. Well, so let, me just, let me just you know, poke in here. I mean, I think in some level, the Mets just did the Yankees a big problem because by putting Trey Turner at 300 million for 11 and judge is going to look for a 10 year. You mean the contract. Phillies? Yeah. He the means Phillies, the Phillies. Phillies caused that problem. Yeah. The judge, judge is going to look for a 10 year contract. What is he going to go for? 450? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And that's just too much. The Yankees aren't going to go for that. Well, okay, Adi, what's the right number here? Your play general manager yeah, your favorite I mean, team. It's, so you, you know, can't complain. We don't want you to complain yeah, when this happens. I'm we want to know what, I mean, when you say I'm that going, that's not the right number, I don't know what I, that's. I'm putting a I mean. pretty hard uh, a, a, I think a center fielder, right fielder, center fielder like Judge, um I think he's he's going to be super for 5-6 years and pretty um average for the back 5. He's definitely right. So, 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 so you can then amortize that and say, like, okay, like, let's say he's you, you know, we're really kind of paying him a five year contract. What, what's so I would say, I that, guess I don't know, you know, he's like, you no, know, so if I would have said, I would have said that Judge's contract was worth be worth 300 million to 10 years, easy and, yeah. and maybe 350, but Turner's is 
way, way overvalued. Well, okay. Well, set, set Turner's aside and just, I'm curious what the number is here. And I would go between 350 and 400 million for judge for 10 and, years. And what's that based on? Um, a lot, a lot of production in the next three or four. It, it would, it would basically, I mean, I guess the per, the annual value would be a little bit more, but kind of a little bit more than what Trout got a 10 year contract for a few years ago. So it's like, you know, like imagine like taking Trout's 10 year, cause it, it was like a 10 year, three, 160 million. Yeah, I mean, it's, also, like, I, it's like 36 per year, I think, is what Mike Trout's uh, making. I'm gonna throw and he signed a 10 year contract a few years ago. So inflate that plus, the, you know, because I think Trout You're was coming gonna... off an, an MVP season when he signed that contract as well. And that was, an, you know, that was an extension where he wasn't actually in a free agent bidding war. So that's. Let me drive the price up further. Something else here. We're business school professors, at least, uh, at least, uh, yeah, all of us are. Um, Net present value when Trout signed that contract, inflation was chunking along at about two percent, three percent a year. <laughs> and now, what are we looking at? Yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's, yeah, 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 I mean, that's part of the myriad of things where, like, I'm like, you know, I, I don't know when you say something like three hundred millions too much or four hundred millions too much. I mean, to who? And 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 I, I mean, what? I, I guess what is that? What where does that statement come from? Other than, I mean, it would be the largest contract, you know, in baseball. Yet, yes, but I mean, yeah, it's, he's got he's got the substrate. It's going to be. I mean, he won the MVP in a walk year. Of course, it's going to be the largest contract ever given out in baseball. So, Adi, you're worried. You're you're as a fan of the club. You're worried about them committing to too much. Like, no, so no, far? not like, at all. The- I'm not worried about that. Uh, the Yankees should don't are are underspending. I'm worried. This is. I'm worried that the Yankees in their frugal. Their frugal side oh. will walk away from Judge because he's can he's, someone's going to pay him a lot. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, okay, I think this- you're, you're worried that they're going to behave like they did a few years ago when both Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, two future Hall of Famers, were on the mark, and the Yankees are like, nah. <laughs> 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 okay. So what what do you think he's going to do, and does he have any interest? Should he just take the highest bidder? Or should he show any what what how much weight should he put on remaining a Yankee or, or being a well, Yankee? Well, that's something as a Yankee fan, I would say they should think of us as higher because your your future value, and therefore therefore backdating it to your net present value, and and non-salary compensation has got to be bigger if you play for the Yankees. Everything mm-hmm. about playing for the Yankees is bigger. And that's valuable. Because of I mean, your exposure, you got, I mean, you got to deal with the hubris of the fans. That's the only downside, I suppose. Ah, come on, but uh, but but I mean, like, I mean, certainly financially, yeah. I mean, there's no bigger market yeah. than New York. So uh, unless he has some serious, you know, you know, uh, deep. But I mean, but, but I mean, but I mean, his 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 rationale might not just be financial. No, he might desperately want to get back to the Bay Area, right? So what what about what about quality of quality of winning? Well, you know, yeah, like, so, I mean, he he wouldn't want necessarily. I mean, the Yankees also are a strong argument because it's a the team's perennially in the playoffs. I mean, you know, yeah. they obviously yeah. have had some. How well, how well run do we think the Yankees are? Like, rank them in, among the thirty teams. Where would they Where would they fall? You know what? I've, my everybody says they're a well run team, but all my disappointment year in and year out has got to argue something. Um, no, that's just sports. Sports suck, Adi. They just kill yeah, us. Yeah, that's bad. I wish I knew. The Yankees have always been the most um, tight team in terms of trying to always under the under the hood. Oh, yeah. I see. I mean, they just see. they don't talk about. It. It's very hard. Okay. I mean, I sat down and talked to Michael Friedman 
at the um, who was their who was their assistant GM who was in charge of analytics, and it was I couldn't get anything out of them. Um, it would they just this is a this is a this is a, a club that just doesn't talk, so mm-hmm. you can only only observe, and mm-hmm. and they 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 have the biggest analytics staff of I think any major league team. They probably spend the most on every aspect of the game, and and they um, so I would argue um, I think they made some strides. I think their relief pitching development has got is really fantastic. Um, okay, hold on, hold on. But it's more than just money spent. It's also the in other sports, it is so often tied to the quality of the ownership. I mean, really, it flows downhill from the owner. And I don't. I mean, how how does the sophistication and, and management and leadership of the ownership there compare to the Dodgers and the Padres? And I, I, I don't know. And I would argue that it probably isn't that great. Um, I'll throw out another thing. I don't think that much of Aaron Boone as a manager. And I've always been of the kind who says that the manager in baseball is just not that relevant. But my legion of insiders have started to communicate backwards, saying, no, that's actually a big thing. And that, no, the decisions that a manager make might not collectively add up to something. Um, and maybe in football, it's bigger. But the influence that the manager has on player performance is far be- be- bigger and, and more important than Adi. You're uh, talking. You're talking about this black magic. What? Who's? What's? Who's not, speaking you're right. here? Who's? Exactly. I, I've just been. Uh, I mean, you take a look at the Mets. The Mets are on paper that much that that different. Um, added Buck Showalter. They're competitive, right? Um, I, I've I've noticed this in baseball. So it, going back to an old conversation, I remember talking about Billy Martin. How is it possible when Billy Martin went from team to team to team to team <laughs> to team? Everyone went from like last to, bear, to first. He did it consecutively. <laughs> I mean, and so there, I think there is something to inspiring a player to be their best, particularly in a 162 game season. So Adi, it's fascinating to me that you're, you're, you're moving on this topic as a function of having relationships with people in teams. It's like, it's like you've got these scouts scouring the world, sending yep. you back information from inside the buildings and you're, and they're beginning to, and those guys go in there and believe. And they've been convincing you. That's super interesting. Big topic for another day, but that's super interesting. All right, guys, why don't we leave that there? That's World Cup and baseball to kick us off here in the first quarter. We've still got three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter of this two-hour show. Cade Massey hosting along with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric is away this week. You guys can jump in. You can jump in on our Twitter feed. We'd love to hear from you up there. Ideas, complaints, elaborations. We've had some elaborations recently of some things we talked about, which is awesome. Our handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. You can also catch us by email. Drop us a note. Email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us, and we enjoy hearing from you. Good, bad, short, long, whatever you got, send it our way. We get as much as poss- much of it as possible on the air. Q2 this week is an interview. We're doing two interviews this week, Q2 and Q4. Q2, Brian Burke, longtime friend of the show founder of the popular website, Advanced Football Analytics, and for years now, one of the leaders in the stats and information group at ESPN, the analytics group there. He has been on the cutting edge of college, I mean, pro football, mostly analytics, for a long time now. 
after a career in the military as an aviator. Big shift, big shift mid-career for Brian. Brian, good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always a blast to talk to you guys. Well, we wish we got to talk to you more often. You are sporting uh, a good ESPN. You're being a company guy with the pullover, but then you got a funny looking hat there. I can't quite make sense of what the hat is. <laughs> this is a, a Kyle Larson number five uh, Hendricks Motorsports uh, ball cap. So, um, did we know that you're a NASCAR? When did you become a NASCAR guy? So, uh, my first 2016, I went to a race. You know, there's actually a conversion date. Um, yes. So it was, it was the Richmond race here in Virginia, kind of uh, Labor Day weekend, maybe. Um, okay. So uh, it was always. Hold on, of, you must be favorably disposed, right? I mean, you flew fast things for a living for a long time. You must like that kind of thing. I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I thought I would. And I tried to get into it and I couldn't. I, it, it just just left turns and and so on. I was one of those people that just dismissed it. But it was all, someone someone told me if in order to get into it, you really have to go to a race in person. And so okay. this was kind of a bucket list item. I, I wanted to just hear the sounds and smell the the fumes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so I mentioned this to uh, a friend I, I would bump into at the Sloan Conference frequently. His name was Eric Chenny, and uh-huh. uh, he's, he's a reporter for CNBC. And I mentioned this to him. He's like, oh, well, I've got all kinds of connections. Just pick a race and we'll go. Okay. And he had to bow out. He got engaged, but he, he kept the, he, you know, he kept his promise and, and got me these tickets. And he got me this thing called a hot pass, which is like NASCAR is like super fan friendly. I mean, okay. super fan friendly. And they really cater to the fan. And this hot pass is like an all access pit row in the garages. What? Not just yeah, not just pre-race, but during the race. No. So he set me up with this with this guy. I'm blanking on his name right now. Uh, big, I can't remember. He was a lineman played for East Carolina University, and he was the gas man for the 42 car, which is uh, Kyle Larson was driving that car at the time. And he said, Big Ed, Big Ed Watkins. <laughs> and, and so he's like um, – Hey, you stick with me the whole race and I'll show you everything. And I, I felt like a member of the pit crew, like literally, <laughs> literally on the wall. And they would like throw the tires at us and be like, here, hold this. And then they would do like <laughs> measure the temperature and measure the tread wear and everything. It was, it was absolutely amazing. It was just jaw dropping experience. And so at that moment I was fully forged a Kyle Larson fan. Uh, for no other reason that it was just kind of random. And he was a real up and comer and he, he won the championship. He won the cup a year ago. So, Oh, wow. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. And you've, and you've remained engaged in some way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I'm, I'm into F1 now too, to, you know, uh, following the bandwagon on that as well. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not sure how you find time for these things, given the work that you do, Brian. I mean, it's kind of absurd. T- tell us when we talk to you, we talk to you for, for the pre the, the, preseason show our our nfl preview show and you you've always got like a project that you work well not always but you often have like a project which is an admirable way to work and you go deep for a long time on one thing and and you debut it for espn when the season rolls around and this year's was around receiver tracking metrics and yep. you might you might give us a real quick refresh let me try let me see what i can recall from it but then the question is always going to be okay how's it done How's it acting? How much how much traction is it getting? And my my memory of it was you're you're parsing receiver play into the ability to get open 
ability to catch the ball and then what they do with the ball afterwards, something like that. But even just the ability yeah. to get open is not something that has been well done before. Do I have that right? And then what is the update on how things have looked so far? Yes, you, you've got it right. We I think we formally named it receiving tracking metrics or receiver tracking metrics. And it looks at every route, whether receivers targeted or not. And it, it makes an assessment about how well the receiver is able to get open, uh, how well they, they're able to make the catch or not, and then generate yards after the catch uh, over expected. So um, we call these open score, catch score, and yak score. And they're all on a scale of zero to 100. We have to keep things kind of simple at ESPN. Um, if, if I were doing this for a different audience, it might might be uh, displayed differently. But um, it, we're very excited about it. It's done very well. Hold, hold on, Brian. Hold on, Brian. What, do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that is that you've got to put on a zero to 100 scores? Like people are familiar with this scale. We're going to go with the scale. We're going to keep on coming back to the scale. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's roughly a percentile. Okay. And 50, okay. 50 is about average. Um, but it's, it's a mouthful to try to explain, you know, if I put this in terms of expected points added or win probability add or something like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or, or even yards over expected. It's, it's hard to really uh, explain that. We, we okay, so everything we do like in, in a sentence or two, maybe. Yeah. That. Yeah. Right. So one of the things you give up, do, am I thinking about this, right? This is an Audi lesson for me. I shouldn't have needed this lesson as a grown adult person. Um, but I need, I got this lesson and I've, I've taken it to heart. We, you really give up the tails whenever you work with percentiles. And so that's the downside. And, and, and it might actually matter in this context because you'd think that you're going to have some normal distribution with that right tail really kind of getting out there. The guys who are best at yeah. in these open scores are probably a fair bit better than the next guys. But that gets compressed when you just list them one after the other as a percentile. Yeah, it's, it's actually not a percentile. It's it's like a percent. It's actually, I think, every 17 points above or below 50 is like one standard deviation. So we, we gave a healthy. Okay. Okay. So I if see. If someone really is out in the tails, we, we have some room for them to, to, to grow. So okay. So you you just you just renamed the the a Z score of sorry you put a Z score on a scale that people are comfortable with and you left some ceiling there for the outliers that is going to emerge eventually you're going to have to you yeah, yeah. eventually have a hundred and one <laughs> you have to explain why you have a hundred and one no it's capped it's capped no okay all right so let's go away from the scale and so I what what's lovely about this is that you. I mean, when you first did it, you said you were able to show some of these guys really excel. They're they're separable performance dimensions. They're they're not independent, but they are definitely not perfectly correlated performance dimensions. And some players are better at getting open, and some players are better at catching the ball, et cetera. Yeah. So we'd like to tell stories. So we're, we're ESPN kind of calls itself a, a, a storytelling enterprise so a game is a story a comeback player of the year is a story everything is a little story a play is a story beginning middle end heroes villains all that stuff so we can't we don't want to just like drop a number you know some kind of conversation ender like oh this guy's a 75 end of conversation we want to tell a story about how this player is able to produce or why he's not producing um, and that's a much more interesting kind of way to present information to, to fans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the, the, these are like levers to pull basically in the story, the, the open rate, the catch rate and the yak. Um, good. So you lay this thing out and how is, how has it evolved over the course of the season? How much traction is it getting? And I want to, I want to compare it to, for example, your, I think it was the previous year's project or was it two years ago? 
the pass block win rate and the run block win rate for offense and defensive lines. I mean, this is one of the real, you know, success stories for statistics being getting traction, right? I mean, people are quoting these things right and left as an explanation for what's going on with offenses and defenses. Yeah, I think it's, it's part, you know, one of the things we, one of the reasons we started with pass block and run block is because there really isn't a lot of conventional statistics for, for the lines, you know, for right. the trenches. Yeah. And, and the ones that are there are really misleading. I mean, like worse than not having them at all. So what's an example, Brian? Okay. Uh, Joe Thomas, hall of fame, left tackle for the Browns for years. He was like in, in his last couple of years, he was kind of like worse in the NFL in pressures allowed, right. Or sacks allowed. Okay. Well, he had like Deshaun Kaiser as his quarterback who could not read the field and could get <laughs> rid of the ball. Right. But he was like top two in pass block win rate. Yeah. And so okay. that, that's, I think that's a pretty good example of, of you know, why, why, why it's, it matters that we have good statistics for those guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, that's one that really got traction and you had the advantage of being in a space that was kind of under statistic. What, what's going yeah. on so far with the, with the receiver numbers? Yeah. So we, we partnered with 538. And so they're exposed all the way back through 2017 for every qualified receiver and including running backs, tight ends. Uh, it's all available. So you can sort and filter and uh, to your heart's delight. Um, okay. Hold on. This sounds like a development because for a long time, you, it's almost been the Brian Burke monopoly on NFL tracking data. I mean, it's, it's almost that extreme. Am I right? right? You're on to me. Yeah, that's, that's Yeah. Well, ESPN um, had it, but you were ESPN's guy with that stuff. And so I didn't know that this was part of the strategy this year. You guys have opened them up and to, to some extent. This sounds like it's pretty processed, but but to a new channel, a new, a new is, is 538 your marketing channel? How, do, how are you thinking about it? What's the strategy here? Well, 538 is very agile and they're, they're a partner of ours, right? We're all under the Disney umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we share a lot of capabilities and ESPN.com is a uh, is much more of a huge kind of enterprise type of website. It, it takes an army of people to kind of add a page or add any new capability. Right. It needs to be tested. It's a revenue generator in, in so many ways. So okay. we can't. It's very difficult to to you know to change course with that aircraft carrier. Five thirty okay. is very nimble. They're into experimental things. So um, it was it was a great opportunity. Um, okay. Yeah. Terrific. Terrific. Okay. So what, what are they doing with it? What, what should we go look at if we want to get up to speed on what's going on here? Uh, I don't know what the URL is off the top of my head, but it's projects.538.something.something, but just Google 538 receiver metrics and it'll take you there. And You're saying we can play with these data. It's not just, it's not just the writers over there, the Neils and the Joshes of the world. We can go in and look at the data. Yeah, there's some cool visualizations. There's the table with all the numbers. You can download them and do your own analysis. That was really cool to see. I, I mean, literally an hour after we launched it, I could see on Twitter, people were like, oh, this correlates with this. And I, I you know, I did my own study with this. I mean, people are so hungry for, for information like this. And that was really, really fun to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Brian. Well, listen, um, what about what about stepping away from the details of of uh, that particular project and just talking about the 2020 season in general, 2022 season in general? What has your eye about the NFL this year? That that particular analytics eye of yours, Brian. What are you paying attention to? 
Yeah, we we updated our FPI model this year um, mm-hmm. to be more player centric, um, and it's it, it, this is kind of an experimental year in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's not quite behaving the way we expected it. The priors are are quite strong, um, uh, which, which could be valuable in a way. Um, that's the trouble with priors, Brian. They, they, there's always they're always wrong about some team. You always want to be a little easier on some team, but careful about throwing them away, right? Well, definitely. I mean, we never did, you know, get rid of them completely. We just let the model tell us how much yeah. to, yeah. you know, keep them. But um, this this appears to be this appears to be quite strong. I mean, it makes sense. We've got um, we've got your usual suspects at the top. Um, the Cowboys though are, are number one right now, which not a lot of people would agree with. Uh, yeah. We, uh, uh, first take this morning, they were screaming mad at us. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's good to have the in-house uh, critics. That's good. Brian, hold on. Talk about the weight on the priors, because this is something it's super important, super common. And I think often misunderstood that, even at this point, the football season, 12, you know, 17th of the way through the football season or whatever we are, 13, 17th of the way through, the priors are still going to be very heavy in your take on a particular team. Can you convey to us in any, in any form how heavy it is? Like, I think, I think our listeners may not appreciate how heavy that weight, act, and you consider it to be the optimal weight, and maybe you don't have it quite right. Maybe you need to tweak it going forward, but you yeah. estimated some weight that is, that is coming in. At, what, what do you think it is? Well, I don't, I don't work. I can't, I don't know. I don't work on the FBI project except to, to kind of throw in my wisdom and my experience with it. And, yep, and, yep. Um, but uh, so there's a player component to it. There's a team component to it. And I, the, the player component of it is not updating as, as quickly as we may have hoped, you know, that's, that's staying relatively static. So, um, right. Do you, do you know how much my heart is warmed by hearing you and ESPN struggle with the kinds of things that me and Rufus <laughs> struggle with for years? Do you know how yeah. good I feel right now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this so, is the struggle. This just, you, you, and you would think the, the um, people who don't do the models would think, well, come on, man, just fix it. <laughs> and you're like, no, well, it's harder you, to do than that. You, you and Rufus, you know, you, I know you've had player level components to the model. Um, we've had just quarterback kind of player only. Uh, we wanted to expand that to, to the full range of players. What's interesting is that the world of analytics and football analytics in general has really democratized. So anybody with a laptop and can download some R and download some data can, can dive right in. And um, so there's this constant pressure to kind of stay, stay on the cutting edge. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. We feel that pressure. Um, and so we're, we're kind of, we're trying to push ourselves to kind of take the next step, take the next step. And yeah. again, the story, again, I'll go back to the storytelling. You know, if, um, if, if uh, Ronnie Stanley, the left tackle for the Ravens is, is injured for a couple of games, like he has been, you know, we, we want that to be reflected in the, in the numbers. Yeah. There's a yeah. trade-off sometimes maybe we'll, we'll accept, we'll accept a trade-off where maybe, we're losing a hair of accuracy, you know, in, in some way in exchange for capturing a little bit of that, a yeah. little bit of that story. Yeah. That so makes we, a ton of sense. Yeah. We have a, maybe a different, um, you know, objective yes. than a lot of, um, a lot of other places. Um, it, it has fared fairly well in terms of game predictions. It's not bad. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, but yeah, we, we have a, 
different set of trade-offs than maybe some other folks. Well, let me just characterize real quickly that, I mean, FPI historically has been very strong, one of the best available publicly for sure. But your, your, your system like Massive Peabody has been top down and that was necessary years ago. But now as better and better information emerges on player level, there's the potential at least to have player bottom up models like they do in ba- baseball is all bottom up and basketball is increasingly bottom up and football is basketball is bottom up at this point. Football is increasingly bottom up. So you're talking about changing the fundamental nature of the model to be both top down and, and bottom up. It sounds like it's a big enterprise, but along the way you get these storytelling benefits and that's that I can imagine that's, that's really important. Yeah. And me. I think one of the main stories, at least I've been reflecting upon that we had going into the season, but it's played out in, very different ways in different teams is kind of these top receivers that moved around in the off season, you know, Devonte Avi Adams leaving the Packers, yeah. AJ Brown going yeah. to the Eagles. And, and, you know, a subset of those players have seemed to at least anecdotally had tremendous impact, like AJ Brown on the Eagles being the most obvious example, but then there's oh, yeah. Yeah. been other situations like Devonte Adams to the Raiders where, I mean, you know, obviously still great individual performance, but it certainly hasn't seemingly taken the team to a different level. So I don't know. I don't know how much like a lot of your work with receivers, recent work with receivers is, is you know, whether you're seeing the same narratives I am in that in, in, in the results or what? Oh, yeah. I, I remember in, in when I the last time I was on the show, you, you asked me what to look out for. And I mm-hmm. said, A.J. Brown is going to have a huge impact on the Eagles. And, mm-hmm. and I think he has. And, and you can see the impact his absence makes on the Titans, too. Uh, yeah, Devontae Adams, he went off yesterday, didn't he? But um, yeah, they haven't kind of figured out exactly how to how to keep, you know, do that week after week after week. But um, definitely. So, you know, eventually we're going to cover the we're going to cover the whole map with these advanced metrics. We're going to have you know, I think the next thing I'm going to do is, is defensive back metrics that's on our roadmap. Um, and we, we've got line uh, metrics. We've got, you know, um, uh, I think a running back metric makes a lot of sense. That wouldn't be very hard to do since we already have the run block stuff. Um, and so we're going to have metrics all, all over the field. And so, you know, that can inform a team level model like, like FBI as well. And, and so when players are changing teams, uh, one, of the, one of the drawbacks we had with uh, our original FBI was our priors were all based on Vegas. So basically we reverse engineered all the game level spreads and figured out, okay, the, this team is plus two points over average. This team is minus one points below average. And so on. Yep, yep. that was our priors. And we couldn't tell any stories with it. Like our, all the shows and the writers, they're all hungry for our preseason predictions, but it was super, <laughs> yeah, right. there's nothing to talk about. It's um, market. It's what the market says. Yeah. So it's okay to be, it's okay to, be a little bit wrong if you have a different perspective. I mean, all of these different models could be considered components of a larger ensemble. And you, mm-hmm. when you do a, a big ensemble, you want disagree. You want something that's very good in this kind of category of prediction. You want another model that's good in another way. And they sort of add together to, to something greater. So it's just part of the conversation. So Brian is speaking very loosely, though he knows that there's deep technical roots to that is very close to Shane's world, but this is the, it's just this interesting observation that in an ensemble, you can add value, even if you're less lower quality performance, if it's different, if your perspective is different and you're good in some places where other places aren't, where other members of the ensemble aren't good, 
you add benefit to it, to, you add value to the, to the ensemble. And so it, what you're saying makes a ton of sense. And I like the way you're talking about it, Brian. It's like, look, we're all just little, you know, we're all role players in the, in the universe of football mm-hmm. analytics here. And as no one's really just betting or thinking about one system, they're, they're, they're scouring the universe and collecting information from a variety of systems. And so you're yeah. one ensemble and, the, and therefore, I mean, to take this very literally, therefore what you want, you want to be as good as you can be, but really you also want to be different. You want to be, you want to be doing something that others aren't. You want to be drawing on information that others don't have as much as possible in order to add value in a system like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, it, there is value in, in just having a, a slightly different perspective and, and uh, in a lot of, and it, more than just analytics, for sure. That's right. Um, all right. So let's just look at your, you, you've, you're giving us some caveats, like the Cowboys sitting up top. But right after that, it starts looking a little chalkier. Chiefs, Bills, Eagles, Bengals. What yeah. are you particularly thinking about as you watch the NFL? What's jumping out to you? Obviously, there's some QB drama over the weekend. But in general, is there anything, when you, when you anticipate the playoffs, when you anticipate where this thing is going, what are you thinking about? Well, I thought there were three teams in each conference. Uh, so in the NFC, yeah, the Cowboys, Eagles, 49ers. I thought those were kind of you know, the the conference championship game would, or, or the representative in the Super Bowl would come out of the, one of those three. Uh, the 49ers lost their quarterback, so maybe that's they're out of the running there. Um, I know Minnesota has a great record. We, we don't think they're uh, that strong of a team under, underneath. Um, in the AFC, we've got um, the Bills, the Chiefs. Uh, I know the Dolphins are a darling at the moment, but I think the way the Bengals are playing, maybe they're mm-hmm. uh, going to be the, that three. I know the Ravens were up there maybe a couple weeks ago. I would have put them in that top three, yeah. but you know, even even without Lamar being hurt, I you know I'm a fan of them and I watch them every week, and they're not. I don't think they're going to go very far. If, mm. when, I think they will make, you know, at least the wild card. Uh, they've got a really soft schedule. Uh, they've got, they've already got win, win in hand over the Bengals. And I think they're like three and oh in the division and Bengals are like one and one and three or one and two. So mm-hmm. they've got some built in advantages, but um, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking to watch that offense. How much of that is kind of, again, based on sort of like, just sort of like, ag- like average, kind of analytical things versus like kind of head to head. I know it's kind of hard. You're just kind of doing a subjective ranking there. It's hard to know how much you're building head to head in, but I mean, you mentioned the B, the Bengals and bills specifically, you know, as they're the only teams with sort of a, a track record of actual performance against a consistent track record of performance against the chiefs. So they're kind of, that's my top three as well, but I feel like I may be overemphasizing kind of that head to head stuff when I, when I think about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, the model does not take into account kind of head-to-head stuff, but I think some of the stuff I'm working you know, the individual player metric stuff can really inform that. So, like, if you have a, a team that's great run block team and they're playing a team that can't stop the run, then you know what you're going to see on Sunday, and there's, you know, some value in that. Same with the receiver. We do the receiver metrics at the team level as well, and then we can flip that around and look at the team level uh, for for the secondaries on defense yeah. and you can you know you when you get a mismatch there the scoreboard lights up pretty pretty big are there, are you, real quickly in the last 30 seconds or so are any of these in baseball we'd call them peripherals you're talking about these fundamental measures of performance are there any peripherals for any of these leading teams that you think deserves attention or that we're not that we don't know about that either is going to be an advantage 
late in the season or a disadvantage late in the season? Oh gosh. Um, yeah. The Eagles, it's just a complete package. The run game uh, with, with Hertz, um, AJ Brown. So they've got answers where say a very similar team, you know, down nine ninety five in Baltimore, they don't have those answers. They don't have okay. Those okay. Interesting. Okay. All right, Brian, helpful as usual and enjoyable. Appreciate it. Love what you're doing. As you know, keep it up and we'll look forward to talking to you more down the road. Yeah. Thanks for having me anytime. Absolutely. Brian Burke, ESPN, you know him, you love him. You can see his work all over the place. Track it down. It's always worth looking at. Brian Burke. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q3. Rolling into the second half of the show, just out of a conversation with Brian Burke, our longtime friend, and about to roll into a, a conversation with a new guest, Chris Anderson, on the World Cup and soccer more generally. In between, we're going to catch up on a few other sports. Our open segment at the top of the show covered what was top of mind, World Cup and baseball, not too surprisingly, given this crowd. But there are some other sports, guys. Our traditional sports are still in front of us. We got a quick little run through some of our favorites. Anything catching your eye in college football and pro football, hockey, what do you got? Well, I mean, hockey, I, I think is, is kind of, I mean, there's certainly uh, for being so early in the season, I, I still sort of see this season as early. There's a lot of kind of really interesting sort of like historical stuff potentially happening. Give, I mean, give, give us Shane. I mean, firstly on the, on, on kind of the team level, the Bruins and Devils continue to be off to these historical starts. The Bruins are now 20 and three which is, you know, like a pretty, you know, not, you know, that that is not the kind of winning percentage or point kind of percentage that you typically see out of a team and certainly would be would blow away all the historical records if they somehow could uh, could keep it going through the entire season. We would yeah. be looking, looking yeah. at like, you know, a, like a 70 win season or something. ridiculous. By, by, like by the way, Shane, setting aside the extraordinariness of their record is there being. Are, are there being at the top of their division? Is that how much of a surprise is that? Were they expecting? No, to- no. The fact that the Bruins, I mean, the Devils, I think probably are surprising a few more people in terms of being that dominant. The Bruins, I think, were going into the season looking like a very good team. You know, they, 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 yeah. they, they are, you know, kind of one of these, you know, mainstays at the top of the standings over the last few years. So, so that's not particularly surprising. The pace of it, of course, is something that, you know, any any hockey historian probably looks at it and be like, well, this is there's no way this is st- sustainable, but it's yeah. they're sustaining it, you know, so far. And they keep now, on sustaining it, right? We're right, now right. a good quarter of the way into this over quarter of the way in the season, so right. So Fun. that's worth noting. Yeah, um, kind of uh, another thing, just in terms of our kind of um, you know our kind of, fa- of of show fandom is that the Seattle Kraken are in second place in the West. They have been rising up. They've had a good like month or so. They've been on a real run the last uh, uh, couple few weeks. And so they are actually, you know, they're, they're, they're up there in second place is, in the West. Is this because they, like a playoff contender. Did they finally start listening to Namita? Is that what happened? Is Namita running? Must've been, must've been obviously. I mean, I, you know, their success could only correlate with yeah. her influence within. They that probably did realize the first year that yeah. she's the smartest person in the room. She usually is when she sits down with us, she's the smartest person in the room or, or just, what, what yeah. you start listening to her. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. I, I mean, I think, and even, you know, 
in in parallel to that is obviously as a set you know they're in their second season as an expansion team it does to have success in that first season I mean we did see it with Vegas so it's not like it's unprecedented but it's obviously looking across expansion to most sports you would only expect to sort of see a certain amount of success even out of an incredibly well-run organization in the like second or third years I feel like yeah so there I mean and again we don't want to overread this current trend and say that oh they're definitely like a contender now but they're certainly looking like and playing like a playoff contender at this point which is i think impressive to, to do that even on a second season turnaround from expansion is very impressive i think what, yeah, happened, right. what, what, the, right. what vegas did is kind of like an outlier and i don't think we should renorm to that good good shane that's a good reminder to us and a good heads up about what's going on with the crack yeah. and that's that's awesome it's, it's good to hear also you've given us an update from both the east and the west which is yeah mighty, one, and one mighty good of you one on a person, one more on a personal level. Mitch Marner uh, yeah. is on a 19 game, uh, you know, point streak, which is the longest in Maple Leafs history. So he's already set a franchise record, um, and he's in the top. This is like a top 40 all time hit streak. Okay, um, but just just to kind of again, yeah. the record is. Can you guess who the record holder is? No, some some old guy that scores a lot. Oh, Gretzky, probably. Wayne sure. Gretzky, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's that easy. easy. Wayne Gretzky at fifty-one games. Oh my gosh! Okay, Who's and, and just, two? just to get blow two? your blow, blow your mind a little. Yeah, and I mean, actually, it's kind of like if you want to think about point streaks in hockey, it's kind of it's actually kind of the same scale as hitting streak, like a like a hit streak in baseball, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you start start kind of getting excited and paying attention around 20 or so. But then anybody at 20, you're like, well, you're you're about you're a little less than halfway there, <laughs> basically. And it's the same thing in hockey. And so um, and I also just again, uh, I feel like we should have like an amazing Wayne Gretzky scat like every show. Good. Um, I'm up for Gretz, that. Gretz, uh, so Marner in his 19 game hitting uh, point streak has actually scored 26 points, obviously, because there can be kind of multiple point games in there. So that's good obviously gretzky in his 51 game point streak yeah, scored yeah. 153 points. No, no, no. 51 game He's hit streak averaging three, three, three points per game and marner's 1.25 yeah <laughs> that's extraordinary okay well one other thing on marner if i'm not mistaken he is the player on the leafs that most jumped out to me in last year's playoffs and he likes like a super fun skater he just he just jumps off the screen as moving differently than the rest mm-hmm. of the guys on the ice. And that's among a very talented team. Um, it's That's the Martians take. The Martians take says that guy's different from the rest. So I, I enjoyed seeing his name bubble up, uh, bubble up to the top of the screen. Um, okay. Thank you for that update. We need to start paying more attention to hockey. Matty D, we need to pull some hockey folks in here. Maybe when we roll off of our, momentary soccer obsession we can open up some capacity for that'll be around the time when things will really start picking up which are classic kind of time around christmas new year's is always a fun time to be watching hockey all right well speaking of fun times the college football playoff finally got set over the weekend in fact sunday morning those guys got up and took care of business on sunday morning and they did in fact keep tcu and despite dropping the big 12 title game and because SC got shellacked and didn't have a win, a, a loss to give, they already had one loss, so that took them down to two. Ohio State snuck in for number yeah. for number four seed. So we've got Georgia, Ohio State. Only the second time those two storied programs have ever played, which is a, a real big deal. That's a lot of fun. The opening line there is something like six and a half. Georgia by six and a half, which is a little uncomfortable for Georgia Bulldogs. They're not used to being only favored by six and a half. 
And then the middle game there, number two versus number three, is Michigan TCU. And Michigan's favored, and it's like a lot, nine and a half, ten points, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether the Horn Frogs can stay with Michigan. Did y'all watch that TCU K State Big 12 game? I know midday Saturday, Big 12 might not have had a lot of eyeballs on it, but oh my God, Max Duggan, the quarterback for TCU. I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not sure how many efforts I've ever seen in sports. I'm serious. I'm not sure how many efforts I've ever seen in sports in terms of a guy exhausting himself in on the field. Yeah. There was a there was a series, Adi, in case you didn't see it, there was a series late. It's worth going back and looking at actually. This was, I forget what this was to this they needed. Oh, they were down by eight. There's like four minutes left in the game. Adi, four minutes left in the game. TCU's down by eight. They get pinned deep, like on their own 15 or something. And they go all the way down the field, score the touchdown, and go for two, tie the game to take it to overtime. But the thing is, the way they went down the field, if I'm not mistaken, I think every single yard was Duggan running the ball. There were a couple of called – he's the quarterback. Uh-huh. There were a couple of called quarterback runs, and there were a few scrambles. And one of them, the biggest one was like 45 yards or something. But it was five or six plays in a with him running the ball. And he's the one guy you can't give a breather on offense, right? Nope. Yeah, he can't come off the field. And by the yeah. end, by the time by the time he's down there, he's barely getting up. And the the touchdown run, and there's there's no time left in the game by the time yeah. he's down there. The touchdown run, he fell. He like basically, I'm not even exaggerating, kind of fell over the goal line and as he crossed the goal line, just kind of collapsed. They had to carry him off the carry. Him. Yeah, they, yeah. To, they helped him off the field. Actually, he stands up to go. They they're gonna, they're going to do the the two point conversion. So he gets up and throws a pass for the two-point conversion. The only play the whole time, if I'm not mistaken, that he didn't carry the ball was a two-point conversion that he successfully threw. It was extraordinary. Yeah, no, the only kind of analogous kind of thing I've seen recently in football was uh, that Buffalo uh, Bills-Miami Dolphins game earlier in the season when Josh Allen, like when it was like 120 degrees on the Buffalo side of the feet, on the side, like Buffalo said, you know, Miami's got this, stadium design where the sun shines on the opposing. Okay. <laughs> it was like 120 degrees on their side of the field and i mean i think josh allen again they ended up losing but like you know it was kind of a very last second effort he just basically just collapsed on the field mm-hmm. so, so mm-hmm. how common is it for a quarterback to basically run every play it's it's uncommon and so every now and then I mean, that's not their offense either he's definitely a running threat but it's not their offense for him to like be the leading rusher um, I mean, Baltimore right now, or Baltimore recently is probably the best example of a team that where the quarterback is running on a lot of plays, but it's, I don't, again, I mean, you got to mix it up. It's not even common for the leading running back to carry the ball every play for an entire drive. And mm-hmm. I, I, we need to go make sure that I'm not exaggerating. I may have dropped a play in there somewhere, but real time, I thought it was the case that every single play was him running the ball. And especially is, when they're like trying to come from behind. I mean, the only time you see, a running play on like every drive is when somebody, you know, they're a team's killing the claw, uh, trying to kill the clock with their running back. And it's kind of working in that they're getting enough yards to sort of sustain that you could go down the whole field that way, just running every play and not have any incentive to do otherwise. But even in those contexts, they're usually subbing in, you, you know, you're changing out the actual running back doing it every like series or so, just because, you know, it's a very tiring thing to do. So having yeah. a quarterback do that has that extra level of kind of, you know, not, there's no substitutions or anything like that. 
I can't so, remember if there's any timeouts where you could even get a breather in there or anything like I, that. I, I, I don't, I don't think so. It felt pretty back to back to back. The, um, there was, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth about the fact that, that TCU almost played itself out of the playoffs by qualifying for their conference championship. Mm-hmm. And, and SC basically did play themselves out of the playoff by achieving the conference championship. Then they got blown out. And so we talked about this on the show last week, Dan Wetzel, argues a sports writer who argued look this the field should be set these are the four they shouldn't be penalized by winning or going qualifying for their conference championship if they lose they lose but here you know ohio state and alabama tennessee whoever they shouldn't benefit from not having to play a conference championship it's good logic except there's a problem and this is something that happens again and again when we talk about college football is people want to just focus on one dimension we know that people are trying to populate the playoffs with both some reconciliation of who's best and who's most deserving. This is roughly the two dimensions. We care about other things. We care about conference championships. We might care about head to head, but broadly we care about two dimensions, best and most deserving. And Wetzel's argument depends on most deserving only because what happens, these guys play again and we get more information. And if we care about best, if we care about best, that information has to be incorporated. No. And I mean, I think it's, I I think it's just a fair, you know, it's just an inherent part of the system right now that when when in that balance between best, which you can kind of whatever's got everybody's got their own subjective judgment, or you can use analytics, and kind of most accomplished or most deserving, the stat, the main the the first order stat of most deserving is the number of losses yeah. that a team has yeah. had. That's just kind of how it works. It's like well, you it's know, so within, within all the undefeated teams, we can start breaking ties best on based on who we actually think is best. Within the one loss teams, we can start breaking ties based on who is doing best. But you know, for a team to like a one loss team to somehow be put below a two loss team, that requires a, a, an extra. You know, you really got to believe in the be- like some kind of very different ranking according to best in order to make that kind of calculation. It seems like it's like the loss total is the starting point for starting yeah. to like look at these yeah, things i mean that's that's i mean it's the starting point it's the political point it's the descriptive you know best descriptive um consideration right or not yeah and that's just that and that catches what happens here because sc went from one to two and the one loss ohio state jumped them and tcu went from zero to one and the two loss alabama did not jump them and so it's a pretty simple story you've got there but the there's just this it, it frustrates me that people have a hard time. They want to take one side or the other of this thing, best or most deserving. And the fact that we care about both means that there's not a right answer. The right answer or the answer depends on your preference. It depends on your trade-off, the relative weight of these two attributes. And there's no right answer for that. The committee hasn't said we weight these things equally or we weight deserving this three times more than best we don't know what that is it's a it's an open question it means that there's no right answer it's just this trade-off between these two dimensions and so my i mean my buddy rufus has been on about tcu would be a you know 16 point dog to alabama or whatever which is probably exaggerated but his point is alabama is a better team than tcu most people think well that's not the only consideration here yeah yeah. i mean you know if we i mean if we went by alabama like as is a better team i mean why even play the games just put them in the championship. Just put them in the playoffs for. Uh, well, Shane, get- this but this is the funny thing about that statement because you say that as how as if it's some crazy idea, but that's basically what happened for yeah. years. You know, as soon as 
I mean, it was, it was, well, one, it was, it was, a, it was progress that college football decided to play us, start playing a national title game. Remember, they used to not have a national title game, but it was just somebody's going to choose what two teams to play. Just choose what two teams to play. It's just completely crazy. But as crazy as that is, we're only one step removed from that because mm-hmm. now they're choosing what for. And this is the thing that I think is so whacked about college football tournament design is that the subjective piece is so close to the end In all the other tournaments, there's either no subjective piece or the subjective piece is way upstream of the actual championship. The reason this is such a controversial, ridiculous free for all every December is that they, the committee drops the teams right into the title game or like right one step away from the title game. So the subjective is so disproportionately think, important. Do you think they could like, with an expanded playoff, like let's say they go to 12 teams or they go to whatever, whatever, like is there even at that point, could it basically be more kind of objective criteria? Like, like could they actually start doing winning percent, like something more formal, you know, like the NFL no, does where like, no. you know, whoever qualifies, you know, no, it's, well, the, it would still have yes, to be like. Yes and no. So they're going to give automatic qualifying to six, the top six, um, yeah, so division uh, winners get in. I mean, conference like winners get in. But not only that, Shane, the top four of those get the top four bids. The top four, they get the buys. So that's a that's a substantive advantage that is not subjective. So it's an objective criteria. The top four conference yeah. champions. Well, I mean, the top four. Rated I just mean like for the wild, you know, call everybody no, no. else the wild card teams. Would there actually ever be an official tie-breaking thing like in the NFL? Or would it still have to be some committee deciding it? I, I, I don't think there's going to be, and I think that's probably okay because, look, we have committees decide the 64, now 68 teams to play men's basketball. We have the committees decide the women's softball tournament. Mm-hmm. We have the committees decide there's lots of those guys. Now, look, they're all hybrid systems because the conference champs always get the buys in. But there's a lot of subjective, but the subjective is just sufficiently far upstream from the actual national title game that it's okay. And I think that's one of the big improvements about going to 12 teams is that you take the subjective up a few rounds and let the thing play out. So there's not the committee being too heavily involved, too close to the title game. Now there's a wrinkle in here that combines these two points, Shane, that the idea that we've got two dimensions and people need to get over it. They just argue these one dimensions and the subjective. Our, our, our recent guest, Stuart Mandel was complaining because in the current system, Clemson's not included, but in the 12 team system, which is happening just a couple of years from now, Clemson would come in and Clemson would be a top, would be a buy in the first round. They, they're, they're high enough rated that they'd be one of the four highest rated conference champs at beating, beating, beating North Carolina this past weekend. But they're like the eighth best. And if you just did a straight seed, they'd be like eight, mm-hmm. but they're going to get a buy and they're going to get this privilege from having won their conference championship and Mandel's up in arms about this, but here's the two things that's going on there. We don't just care about the one through eight seeds. That's just, if you care about best, we care about other things we care about conference championships. And so we're okay to privilege those guys a little bit. The other thing that's going on is we'd rather it not be subjective. We'd rather reduce the subjectivity. We'd rather bump the subjectivity further upstream. And by making the qualifiers automatic, the champion, the champions automatic qualifiers and giving the best four of them, the bid, we're taking the subjective piece out of that. And so, yes, there's trade-offs every now and then you're going to have a team that's not as strong up there, but it's worth it because of the trade-offs. Why is that so hard to understand? We care about more than one thing. We've improved it. We've taken, made it less subjective. 
We've made the conference champions, which keep the regular season important. And yes, it costs us a little something. But come on. It's of course it's going to cost us. You can't care about four different no, things. And I mean, like, you know, the, 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 the fact that the schedules are, so, there's so many teams and the schedules are inherently always going to be imbalanced. I mean, it's always going to, there's always going to be those subjective judgments in there, I guess. You need them. You need some subjectivity. You do. You just want it further upstream. That's exactly right. All right. That's a little college football on top of a little NHL. We've got, we've got uh, some soccer or some more World Cup straight away. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball, one of our interview quarters, our standby long-time interview quarter, now one of two as we move back to a more regular schedule. But this week, we're delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time Chris Anderson. Chris is a political science professor. He's at the London School of Economics. He is the Rolf Dahrendorf Professor of European Politics and Society at the LSE. Oh, not the LSE, London School of Economics and Politics. Maybe that's not the LSE. I'm too quick to go to LSE on that one. Chris, for our purposes, is one of the world's great soccer analysts. He's the co-author with David Sally of a 2013 book called The Numbers Game, one of the first books out there to really kind of dive into the analytics of soccer. And more than just a, a sideline watcher, he's involved with clubs. He's, in fact, involved with helping manage some of these clubs. And we thought he'd be fun to pull into our ongoing soccer conversation. Chris, thanks for being here. Appreciate you making time for us. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. So you are based out of, you're German native, based out of London. You spent a lot of time in the U.S., that sounds like you've got a your choice of who to pull for in the World Cup, or do you never quite get past your native German club? How does it work? It's really hard, isn't it? So you grow up in a country and you learn your soccer, you learn your sport in that country, and of course that's the one that sticks with you. But when they stink it up as they have these last <laughs> couple of tournaments, then you, you look for alternatives. And of course, having lived half my life in the U.S., I'm, I'm rooting hard for the U.S. boys <laughs> Uh, when when they're up and they're playing, um, obviously at this point in the tournament, uh, neither of those options are available. Mm-hmm. So I'm sticking with with the English for now. <laughs> they're, still, they're still going. Do you, do you have any Franco Francophile in you at all? If the English don't happen to make it through the next <laughs> round, how flexible are you, Chris? I've been to Paris. So, <laughs> yeah, hey, exactly. uh, now, at this point, I just, I just love the, uh, the World Cup in part because, because it's fun to root for underdogs. It's kind of like the March Madness for, right. for global soccer, and, and that's what makes it fun. Well, also like March Madness, the underdogs seem to do better in the early rounds than in the late rounds, not too surprisingly. But um, it feels like we're winnowing down to some kind of inevitable French-Brazil thing. But um, it's been it's been great fun, of course. Um, Chris, do you have any insight into, uh, uh, you know, most of our audiences over here in the U.S. and we just watched the U.S. get knocked out. People assert and seem to believe that the U.S. team is finally making some progress. This is something people have been talking about for my entire adult life. It looks that way to my intuitive, you know, rubbish, naked eyes as well. But do we have any analytics on that? Do we have any way of knowing how this team is doing relative to past U.S. teams? Or would there can even conjure such an analysis, Chris? Could you imagine some objective way of saying how they're doing other than just world rankings or one-loss records? 
I think it's really hard to do, honestly, in part because of uh, the rarity with which teams really play each other across continents and across competitions. Uh, so as a general rule, I would say the best you can probably do if you wanted to quantify the progress that the U.S. might have made is things like FIFA rankings. But ELO scores are the, the place to go for me for those kinds of things. I think mm -hmm. ELO scores are quite useful. There's several online that people can look for, elofootball.com and others where they can trace kind of the evolution of different national teams. Mm -hmm. and, you know, part of it is, is a sort of a small end problem. National teams don't play all that often. I think in the mm -hmm. average, they might play 10, 15 games. Um, and it's a cha changing cast of characters. So you're not really comparing the same guys playing the same other guys over time. So that's that's a tough one. You can go by tournament results, but that doesn't really tell you a lot. Again, sort of the vicissitudes of a, of a tournament will get in the way of that. Um, but if you look historically, so if you look back over the last 50 years or so, there were a couple of times when the U.S. made some strides between the 70s and the 90s. Uh, soccer, the U.S. soccer team gradually got better. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a big increase uh, when when the World Cup happened. So the, the 10 years after that um, really saw uh, a jump up for, for the U.S. team and those kinds of scores that you can look at. But interestingly, um, it's really kind of plateaued uh, the last 10, 15 years. It really hasn't gone up significantly. Um, and in fact, the gap hasn't really been closed with the very best teams in the world. Okay. Now, having said that, uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing really quickly. Of course, you can look at the quality of guys on the team, right? And so one of the things you might want to yeah. do is say, <clears throat> hey, what is the raw material that a U.S. coach might might be working with at this point in time? Yes, you has to collect them from here, there, and everywhere and put them together and have them play together in a tournament or in a qualifying format. But if you look at who's playing on the on this team now, the kinds of players that, uh, on the, that are on this team, they're playing at a much, much higher level than Americans used to play, and more consistently so. So if you look across that team, they're playing in the very top leagues now. They're not the very best players in the very best leagues, but um, you now have a, a good number of guys uh, who are playing at a very high level. And there's mm -hmm. only more coming through. And they're very young, and so you've got a really good pipeline. Um, so mm -hmm. just judging from that, um, I think it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I think there's lots of encouragement out in terms of the kind of the process and pipeline part of things i do think you know one explanation for the fact that they've plateaued is it's it's just really hard to kind of break through to that next gap i mean i guess the next you know if you can kind of think about tiers of countries it's you know consistently making it to the world cup consistently making it to the knockout rounds of the world cup and i think america is kind of there now but as far as breaking through and winning the thing I mean, you know, it's a handful of countries that have ever done that, basically. So I kind of feel like that gap is pretty monumental. It's, uh, you know, it seems like a very random game, but at the same time, it's, you know, only these kind of the giants that tend to win it. So I guess to put that all in terms of a question, is America in that next group that possibly breaks through and wins the whole thing? Or are there like countries like the Netherlands or Belgium or whatever that are kind of, is America not quite even in that next group of, Almost. I mean, there. I mean, even England's only won it once, and it was yeah, a, that's a right, couple that's generations right. ago. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think we're kind of knocking on the door. I think we're solidly in that second 
tier, so to speak. Um, we, nobody would bet on us making the semifinals. Um, I think a lot of people would bet on us getting out of the group stage any given tournament at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. then we're talking knockout tournament. Then we're talking about experience. If you think about the kinds of teams that make it through, there's a lot of guys who play at a high level and a lot of pressure all the time in the Champions League. Um, they've been there in the Euros and in, in the World Cup. And so some of that is also just really um, managing a group of guys through a, say, four-week tournament cycle mm-hmm. and getting mm-hmm. to show up uh, when they really need to. So that's a really hard thing to do. But I, I, I think the future of U.S. soccer is incredibly bright. If you fast forward this group of guys and add some pieces to it for the next four years, I think um, we can be really hopeful. What does that mm-hmm. mean? I don't know. <laughs> so can I ask... Um, the biggest obstacles to the U.S. getting better are, as I see it, two, and I don't know what the balance is. Maybe you can elucidate that. One is that our system isn't that great. We don't have the great coaches. We don't have the great training facilities. We don't have early competition for our athletes. The other is that just too many Americans just don't care. Um, it's not a big sport here. And it's and yet a lot of kids play, but by the time you get to age 10 or 11, no one's really that interested. The World Cup just doesn't capture our attention. Uh, which suggests if that's the driver, we're never going to get great unless it's the former, in which case maybe we have an opportunity. So what do you think? Ah, all the inputs. So I think if you look at the system, um, there's sort of the the hardware and the software. I think the hardware is really, really good. The physical infrastructure in the United States obviously is is amazing. There's lots of pitches, there's facilities, there's that kind of good stuff. People, kids are well-fed. They, you know, (laughs) they have a regular sort of life. But if you think about kind of, that kind of aspect of performing as an elite athlete, I think uh, we're we're great. Um, I think the the one thing I would mention about U.S. soccer where the system isn't great, I think you're right, uh, or you, you're making a good point, it has to do with coaching. The quality of coaching, I think, is is lower than it needs to be for us to develop truly elite athletes. Um, uh, there's the associated sort of pay-for-play kind of element to it where you essentially are saying, you know, it, we're not interested in the very, very best athletes, but we're interested in really good athletes who can pay, um, which is, is a problem for selecting the very best people. But look, we're a really big country. And so even if you take a small percentage of a big country, right, you know, I don't know, Belgium is what, 8 million people, 10 million people, another <laughs> million people. We're talking yeah. greater metro New York City area right so there's got to be some good footballers in there so for me it's mostly coaching and then having an appropriate level of elite competition and because we're such a big country it's really dispersed and so you have these pockets of excellence in southern california and sort of uh, mid-atlantic region um, other sort of parts of the country these kids don't play each other whereas here in europe uh, they all play at a very high level against each other, growing up, going through the ranks. And that makes a really big difference, I think. So the, if you think about the best Americans on the current team, these these are Americans who left America, right? Mm-hmm. These are kids who leave the U.S. when they're 15, 16, 17. They need to get out. Or think about Alfonso Davies who's a, 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 on the Canadian team and plays for Bayern Munich now. These are kids who have to leave to be able to then make that jump to that very next sort of level, that next tier. And mm-hmm. at the moment, we don't develop them domestically well mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that the U.S. system understands why recent progress has been made in order to keep on doing whatever they've been doing right? 
Yeah, so I think U.S. soccer is a little bit um, schizophrenic about it. Um, on, on the one hand, we need and want the U.S. Uh, men's team, and of course the women have been amazing for many years for all kinds of different reasons. Um, but if you think about the men specifically, they realize that in order for us to have elite players, they need to play in elite competitions, which means young players have to go to Europe. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think there's obviously a genuine desire to help build the ecosystem to develop mm -hmm. those kinds of players at home. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about kind of MLS and kind of uh, the, the pathway of young players into professional soccer in the U.S., I think a great strides have been made. I really think it's gotten better. Um, I think MLS has gotten the, the domestic element of, of MLS mm -hmm. has gotten better. Uh, but that there's still that gap. There's still that gap, and 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 I think it's just really hard. If you if you're the the agent or the parent of of a, of a, of a 15 year old who has a chance to play uh, in a, in a big league in Europe, um, what do you advise that kid? Do you advise them to stick it out and stay through high school and and play for an MLS academy, or do you say, hey, why don't you sign for Bayern Munich? Mm -hmm. um, I know mm -hmm. what my answer would be. If mm -hmm. if all if all we care about is elite performance, uh, right. Right. Well, there's that's that's another issue is the the whether or not the U.S. <clears throat> is too diversified in their interests. Not quite as monomaniacal about soccer, so um, that doesn't help produce the extreme the extreme I, outliers. Let me give you another example. So uh, to argue against myself really quickly, um, I I do some work with uh, Real Salt Lake and MLS, and and we took our under 15s group team to uh, Germany to play in a, in a summer tournament against Borussia Dortmund, against uh, um, a Hungarian team, against Juventus Turin, and the big, big clubs, big teams. Mm -hmm. They always held their own. They can wow. Play. Wow. Uh, uh, this was not a lopsided affair by any stretch. So the boys did really, really well. Augsburg was another, another team in, 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 that, uh, in that tournament. So that's this is why I'm hopeful. I see some of the youngest players, the 12, 13, 14 year old players, okay. and they can play. That's great. They that's great. Well, listen, uh, one more note on the international side before we want to hear more about the work you're doing with with folks like Rio Salt Lake City. Um, you talked about, you know, you you sound like your interest is even kind of tempered in in the World Cup because of how unusual it is. It's rare for these guys to get together. They don't play very often. It's just in some sense, it's not that maybe it's not that high quality. It's not that consistent, that, but it's paired with, I don't know of any sport that's more dramatic. Like the coverage is more dramatic. The coverage, the, the fan response is so hyperbolic. It is the most operatic of sports and the World Cup is the pinnacle of that opera. Is it, it just feels like the disconnect between the amount of stories told and the data from which they are told is higher in this sport at this moment than any others that I, that I know. Am I, am I getting that right? 100%. 100%. The, the World Cup is a spectacle. It's, it's the a stage that every footballer wants to perform on, but it is a, it is a spectacle and a stage. And the, story, the quotient of stories to data is really lopsided um, because there's just not enough soccer being played mm -hmm. uh, to really understand what's, what's truly going on in these teams. Um, mm -hmm. Which also has implications if you think about for how these teams prepare for each other. Right, They can't really rely on a lot of really reliable information to get a good grip on who they're playing and how those mm -hmm. other teams are going to play. So at the World Cup, you tend to also get much more sort of conventional methods of, of scouting the opposition and getting ready for games and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, numbers don't really help a ton. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, give us a little background on how you got going into soccer because you're pretty deeply involved at this point, and yet you come from a traditional academic serious side. You study, you know, democracy and big topics like that. How did you transition to to the game? Yeah, that was mostly my midlife crisis. I was sitting in Ithaca, New York, and and my my wife is a business school professor, and she brought me. The, you know, Michael Lewis's Moneyball home and said, she's, hey, I'm teaching my MBAs with, you know, with this book about evidence-based management. This seems kind of <laughs> interesting. You like sports, you like numbers. Why don't you read it? And of course, it's the classic story for so many of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started a little blog uh, on my couch and uh, in 2009-2010 around the World Cup actually the World Cup was a big uh, event mm-hmm. for that I tried to predict who was going to win the World Cup that year and I came up with like Brazil had a 9% chance of winning it and that was far better than most other teams because the, of again because of the tournament format and uh, so it kind of went from there the blog uh, was called Soccer by the Numbers and it kind of became a thing and then mm-hmm. of course David mm-hmm. Sally my good friend David Sally and I lived down the street from me, stuck our heads together and said, hey, this is interesting. Let's write a book about it. So the numbers game came out. And, and from that, I had a I had the really great fortune of, of being introduced to some people who are interested in investing in uh, in soccer clubs in Europe. And, and from that, really, I got deeply involved in European soccer. And so mm-hmm. uh, it was really kind of the typical academic. You write a book and then hopefully something good happens. Um, well, but, but Chris, the timing here is especially propitious in some ways. Like I, I think you guys, you must've been, I mean, 2010, where was soccer analytics in 2010? How many clubs had somebody, how many sources were there for outside expertise? How much data was there? I'm guessing it was all pretty nascent at that point. It was super nascent. Absolutely. So this is sort of, I think there's a, there's a kind of a, um, the last 10 years have been truly transformative last 10, 12 years in soccer. have been truly transformative when it comes to analytics um, it was very basic, uh, basic stuff. Some teams did um, sort of box scores, but not even. I think the most you got was people um, uh, monitoring the physical performance of players. So what started mm-hmm. to come up mm-hmm. with GPS systems and some tracking during training and during games of the running that players were doing. But there was very little sort of deep analytical work being done or none at all, frankly. And then it really started to change with when the movie Moneyball came out and then everyone sort of said, hey, what is that all about? And then um, we had the good fortune in terms of the the wave that came into the game of, of, of being asked our, our advice. And, and so now, of course, every team does it. Now every team has uh, analysts, they have access to, you know, all kinds of information, not just about the physical performance, but of course, also the technical, tactical performance of players, all the stuff that we can imagine um, what is interesting and perhaps different about soccer compared to some of the American sports, I'm, I'm sure you guys have talked with other people about this, is that it's it's a it's a game that has a lot of uh, uncertainty or randomness to it. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of that, um, there's been a bit of a resistance within teams, among coaches, among scouts, and so on, to truly take to heart what analytics might be able to to say and deliver uh, to people. So culturally, it's been a it's been a challenge. Um, it's been less about whether the math is right. Mm-hmm. It's been much, much more about whether you can h- help people make better decisions and how do you manage that relationship and how do you manage <laughs> teams um, to do that? Um, so it's really a management problem. It's never been a, a, mm-hmm. a, a math problem, as I like to say. 
Well, that's your your. I, I'm vaguely familiar with uh, the challenges you discuss. In fact, I think it's not even unique to sports. This is something with analytics um, yeah. in many industries, especially as they've exploded and and more and more unorthodox people are offering help to people who traditionally made these decisions. There's resistance between um, yeah. the traditional way things are done, but it's just exacerbated in, in sports. Um, what is your, you, you made some comments at the top of the conversation that were, um, not, I would say, typical of a hardcore analyst, of a religious analyst. You talked about, you know, the importance of managing a group of guys over a four-week cycle. You referred to a couple of the softer challenges of running a soccer team. I'm curious where you are on that continuum. If you take someone, you know, Sam Hinkey, while at the Sixers, was pretty extreme. I don't know what he would say now. He'd probably be a little softer. He And, you know, Daryl Morey, not quite as extreme as Sam. But some on the other end, you might have some traditional general managers in football in particular who are like open, but they're not especially evangelical. Where are you on the spectrum? And, and, and in particular, Chris, as an analyst who's got this much real world experience with the clubs, what do you think traditional analysts are getting wrong? Like, what do you think the rest of us are kind of not getting? Because we're, it's easy for us to sit over here and write blogs or post papers or not actually run the club. What do you think we're missing that's more complicated than seems sometimes from the outside? Oh, yeah, man, that's a, how much time you got. Um, I think there's, it's a really hard question to answer succinctly. Um, it's obviously sort of the human element. It's obviously the um, element of these are very small organizations, right? So sports teams, certainly soccer teams, which is what I'm most familiar with, are really small organizations as businesses, right? And especially then if on the sporting side itself, we're talking about a really small number of people who, who have to collaborate with each other through a week, through a season. Just real quickly, I mean, to make it, make it precise for people who don't know, how many are we on the sporting side, on the sports side within soccer, what is the relevant number of people inside a building or an organization? In terms of just actually producing, you know, making the sausage of soccer is, of course, there's the players. But then I'm going to say 10, 15 guys, mm-hmm. um, men and women, um, mm-hmm. from strength and conditioning coaches to to analysts to scout, no, not even the scouts, the coaches, um, mm-hmm. rehab, that kind of stuff. Wow. Uh, okay. That's it, really. Um, okay. And so... As you go through your your day, your week, um, everyone gets to know each other extremely well, and it only works on trust. It really only works on trust. And uh, so, if you if you if you bring a new tool to to the t- to to the table, like an analytical whatever machine, let's call it a big black box, and you say, "Here, guys, this is great. Let's go do this." Um, of course, they're like, "Who the who the heck are you? And what mm-hmm. is this?" And so, just like in any other business that you referred to earlier. You've got to find a way to earn people's trust and make them understand that this will help them make their lives better. It will help them make better decisions, perhaps prevent them from getting fired and win a few more games. But that only works over time. There's no demonstration of, see, I did the maths right and here we go. It's more along the lines of them understanding that you have their best interest at heart and that you can, um, that there's something here that might help facilitate their lives in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And and then it works. Um, and that's that's a true collaboration. So think about getting ready for the next game. In soccer, that means that maybe we're playing on a Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, we're trying to get ready and figure out the game plan really for the next for this next game. 
if you have something to bring to the table for the conversation where you can say to a coach, hey, did you know Austin FC are really weak on in on this element of the game? Um, and then coach might say, oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And I have the video analyst check it out and see what they're doing. Why is this mm-hmm. pattern there? Mm-hmm. And you can help ask some questions, not necessarily provide all the answers. And as you go into that conversation, they come, if you do it often enough and it, it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's comfortable, you get into a rhythm of, of working together. So that's mm-hmm. sort of, mm-hmm. that's analytics. Mm-hmm. Analytics means collaborating with a group of other people throughout the week, throughout the season to mm-hmm. help make sure that we understand how we're playing, who we're playing, um, where we're good at, what are we bad at, um, all that good stuff. Chris, you're using a word that that um, seems important to me here, and that's collaboration. And yeah. in one sense, you're saying, look, I'm giving an input, and then they're going to blend it with some of their own inputs. But another sense of collaboration would be I have a model, and over time and in my relationship with these guys and over many iterations, that model is going to change because because of their input. Is that right? And do you have an example of how your models, I know, I know you're doing more than just models, but let me just generally say models are mm-hmm. different because of input from the traditional traditional guy side. Yeah, it goes both ways. So obviously I think the tr- more traditional uh, guys have extraordinary domain knowledge, I would call it. They have insights. They've forgotten more about the game than I'll ever know. And having that feedback on a point I might make, that uh, might be an analytical point, is very helpful for refining that and, and going back and checking out and understanding what I'm doing right or wrong. So mm-hmm. that domain expertise is extraordinarily important. At the same time, there are times when I have something that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hadn't thought about or they think I'm stupid. Well, it can be any <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so my, one of my favorite things is is walls for free kicks. Like when they make sense, when they don't make sense. Okay. The okay. Of time, how do you do uh, throw-ins? Throw-ins is the most frequent restart in a soccer game, right? Mm-hmm. No team really practices it. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a couple of teams that I know that actually have throw-in coaches and they sort of try to work that out. Most coaches you talk to and you say, we really need to work on throw-ins. They look at you like you're a, a complete and utter <laughs> himself. Right. Okay. What are you talking about? Um, so there, there are things that pop out of the data that might make me say to somebody, "Hey, have you thought about so and so?" And sometimes in the beginning they might say you're an idiot. The second time they might say, "Ah, that's interesting." And once they start to trust you, yeah. this collaboration, this conversation mm-hmm. um, allows you to then have a productive exchange where you might say, "Actually, did you know that if you do a throw-in within, I'm going to say, 2.5 seconds, I'll make this up, we're much more likely to retain the ball." And the coach might tuck that away and say, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll do something mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, again, because of the conversation, it's not always immediate to do as an organization is change the conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. to me, is really where it becomes valuable. Yeah, this you're describing a process that is slower than most analysts would like. And and, and 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 not linear and not not even monotonic necessarily, and um, that's I, that's that can be super frustrating. But even this comment you said, like if you had this observation, you know, something about a, a throw in within two and a half seconds, we you know retain possession or whatever it is. That said, in the first thirty minutes you've ever meeting met with a team is going to be very different than that said. You know, one year into your relationship while you're standing on the sidelines with the guy. Right. You can and, never see that in the first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Shane was going to jump in here on something. Yeah, I mean, I guess one way in which I sort of think, analyst, like I, I was actually curious to kind of hear your thoughts on what how, how you kind of think things are kind of represented as you watch, say, a game on uh, on television. And I know soccer, like hockey, is a very difficult, a different watching experience on television than live anyway. Um, they've been experimenting a lot with, you know, in, in American football with layering various kind of analytics on top of the telecast. And I think there's been some hits and misses there. Is there something that you would like to kind of, I've got a couple ideas myself, but is there something that you would ra- like kind of like if, if something could be imposed essentially along uh, on top of the flow of the play that was more numerical, what would it be? Oh gosh. What would it be? That's a really good one. Um, it, it, soccer is really um, to me, to me. It's really a game of space. It's a it's a game of real estate. Um, it's got less to do with kicking the ball than almost anything else. Um, and so anything that would allow the viewer to understand the use of space and the how how the collective um, expands and constricts the ability for others to you know, occupy space, move into certain spaces, and so on. So, so for me, it's really about space more than anything mm-hmm. else. Because uh, it's really the most team of all team sports in a way. The individual matters less than in almost any other sport, mm-hmm. maybe not American football. But um, and so, what you really try to understand is is the collective. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. If I have to say something, but what? Yeah, about no, you? I mean, I, I, that's one actually. Something to do with space being created was something that was kind of on my list. The other one I would love to, I potentially could be helpful is things like just kind of like some measure over that could be put on top of the players like not constantly but intermittently like that just shows how how far they've ran or what their average speed is or something like that just to kind of norm these things i often as a casual soccer fan when i'm watching kind of substitutions that are occurring in the second half near the end of the game i i never kind of really have a good feel to how much of that is kind of strategic, like a change in offense versus defensive strategy versus just this particular player is looking exhausted out there and we need to get them off. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think one of the, one of my favorite studies is, is one of, of Messi. Um, And so Messi doesn't run as much as some of the other guys, but he's a magnet for the opposition. And so him just walking Mm-hmm. attracts other players mm-hmm. and his walking is actually a productive use of his time in the game uh if he walks in certain areas so that then opens up space for other guys so mm-hmm. so if you put a number on Messi, it's going to look really low a lot of times because he's just walking around uh, chris that makes me wonder i was going to say that something i was curious about just watching this tournament because we've been hearing so much and reading so much and talking so much about expected goals it would help me. I don't know if I want this on the telecast, Shane, continually, but I would love to sit down with someone who could show me a, a sample of some soccer and how expected goals changes with the play that I'm watching. I'd just like to, uh, to, to help me better understand where the contributions and degradations come from. Because you see, you know, you see more or less effective passes. You see passes that are just a little bit off or you see runs that seem like they're a big deal. I have no sense of how much that pushes around XG. And it would be yeah. helpful to me in, in understanding the game. I think the proxy, I, I, the only proxy I use for it is the crowd noise uh, <laughs> and, and the announcer noise. It's like I think something's building, but it's like all this <laughs> secondary information for it. Yeah, put, let's put that on the telecast. No, but I think that's right. And, and there's a, there's an interesting metric developed by a, a young Cornell grad who now works for Arsenal uh, by the name of Karun Singh, and Karun has come up with this idea of expected threat. And so it's less about the shots because the shots are relatively rare occurrences. It's more mm-hmm. about kind of 
where we are in the game as the ball moves around the pitch, mm-hmm. what is the amount of threat that this poses to the other mm-hmm. side, given where they are and given where we are and given mm-hmm. where the ball is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this expected threat, I think, is a really interesting idea also for viewers so that they understand the, the true flow of the game. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes the ball is in, in interesting areas and you think, oh, that must be really interesting and dangerous when it really isn't. And other times it's actually right. you're about to get done, you know, so. Right. Um, all right. Listen, we should let you go. I feel like I could do this for a, a long time. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Thanks for making the time from over there in the UK. Delighted to have you on Wharton Moneyball for the first time. Thank you. Absolutely. That was Chris Anderson. Chris is the Rolf Darendorf Professor of European Politics and Society at the London School of Economics and Politics. Despite that fancy title, we've been talking about football, a European football, international football, the World Cup and analytics and some of his work with MLS clubs. It's been a real treat to talk to Chris. He's got a book out, by the way, from 2013. His book is called The Numbers Game. He's also written up in a recent book, a book called Expected Goals, the story of how data conquered football and changed the game forever. That is by a New York Times writer named Rory Smith, but he's described in there in a fair bit. That was Chris Anderson. And guys, that has been two hours of sports analytics. Another show here on Wharton Moneyball. Appreciate y'all being along for the ride. For Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen, who have been here in the last quarter. For Eric Bradlow, our fourth colleague out and about doing Eric Bradlow things today. For Matty Dance, the boss man. Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Thanks for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.